Heaven and earth, Lord Jesus, shall pass away when you come to reign. We look for that day and ask you again that until it comes, when you are fully glorified, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that you are Lord, grant us grace to be faithful to you, not only with these gifts, but in every moment across all of the days of our lives, with everything that we are and everything that we have, we ask in your name. Amen. Please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18. As we stand here to read the Word of God, as if you read Ezra, they stood to read the Word of God. They stood for hours. You only stand for a short while. We're reading Deuteronomy 18, beginning at verse 15, reading through verse 22. And again, we're in the Advent season, and so hear this particular promise that God makes and which was fulfilled when its fulfillment came. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing and help as we consider it together. Father, thank you, as always, for yet another evidence that you are kind, that you are gracious, that you are compassionate and merciful. Thank you for yet another evidence that you don't leave us to ourselves. We're not stuck here in the midst of this life, wandering around uncertain about who we are, who you are, what you expect of us, what you call us to, the hope that you give us. Thank you, God, that you speak. And we do ask you for your spirit, that we might have help as we think about these things this morning. And Lord, as always, we ask you that you would direct us more and more to the fulfillment of all of these things, even 
Jesus, your Son, the lover of our souls, we pray in his name. Amen. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and following make a promise concerning uh, a prophet, one who is going to come. Uh, Moses looks down the corridors of history. If you read Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 7, we'll come back to this in a few minutes. If you read Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 7, you'll see in those two places that this promise concerning a prophet who is to be raised up, who will come from among the brothers and the sisters, from among the community of God's people, who will be like Moses, this promise is fulfilled in Jesus fulfilled in Jesus. We're taking our cue for these sermons during this Advent season from Paul in his statement in Romans 5 that Adam is a type of the one who is to come. If you read through the Old Testament, every place you go, every place you go, even a place like Psalm 80, it seems like, it seems like there are directional arrows pointing us into the future. It's all, as you read through the Old Testament, it's all about the future. Someone said recently, in thinking about Genesis 3.15, this first promise that God makes, you know, this promise of a warrior who's going to come, who's going to crush the head of the serpent, who's going to vanquish evil and eradicate evil from, from the whole of the realm. You know, he's going to throw the evil Prince John off the throne. He's going to arrest the Sheriff of Nottingham and throw him in jail banish them forever. Someone has said the whole of the rest of the Old Testament is merely a succession of footnotes to that original promise. And Paul has said that Adam is a type of the one to come. Even in Adam, we're looking forward. Genesis 3.15, we're looking forward. Deuteronomy 18, we're looking forward. This is the season of Advent. It's the first Sunday in Advent. And Advent means what? It means a coming. It comes from a Latin word that means to come. Advent, this season of the year, is a time in which we remember that across all of those centuries and all of those millennia, going all the way back past through Genesis 3.15, all the way even to Adam, all of history has been pointing ahead. It's been pointing ahead to something, to some arrival, to some appearing, to some coming. And we celebrate that. And, and Advent is celebrated by the church in most places in the world. And, and Advent really is kind of the beginning of the year for us as Christians. Right? I should be saying Happy New Year this morning. Because the first Sunday in Advent is the Sunday in which we begin this recapitulation of all of the profoundly significant events that occurred at specific place in specific time. The Old Testament church, the Old Testament people of God had a succession of festivals. It began with Passover and then Pentecost and first fruits, and then there was the Day of Atonement, the Festival of Atonement, and then there was the Feast of Booths. And, and what were they doing in that? They were recounting, they were remembering. I've said this a whole bunch of times here, but, but what they were recounting and remembering is the fact that history belongs to God. 
History is his story. And Israel, year after year after year, celebrated these festivals, these feasts. They rejoiced, reminding themselves that history belongs to God, that God acts in history. And here in Advent, we're doing the same thing. We're taking our cue from the Old Testament church. We understand that all of those festivals, along with the weekly Sabbath, the Sabbath that reminds us of God's acts in creation, and then all of those festivals that remind us of God's work in redemption, all of that stuff finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus is our Passover. Jesus is our Exodus. Jesus is our atonement. Jesus is our Feast of Booths. He is the consummation of all things. He is the final harvest. All of it comes to fulfillment in Jesus. And throughout the course of the year, right, we look forward not to the Super Bowl. Really, I mean... I, you know, okay, a little bit. But as Christians, what do we look forward to? We look forward to Advent, followed by the Christmas season. And then after the Christmas season is Epiphany. And then after Epiphany, we start to look toward Holy Week. And there's Palm Sunday and Monday, Thursday and Good Friday. And why is it Good Friday? Because of Resurrection Sunday that is followed by Ascension and Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit. That's what we look forward to. That's what we celebrate. And so here in Advent, we're thinking again about this promise and all of these promises and and someone who is going to come. He's going to come to his people. But who is he? Who is he when he comes? See, this is where I hope these next few weeks, these next four Sundays will add some layers to our understanding of Advent. Add some color, you know, like Joseph's cloak of many colors. It was one coat, but it had all of these colors and beauty and everything woven into it. I'm hoping these next few weeks will add some layers of color and beauty to our understanding of Advent. Who is it who comes? Who is the one who is coming? Well, he is a whole lot of things. He is the Savior of the world. He is Emmanuel, God with us. But as we're going to see, I hope, in these next, next few weeks, he is, he is our prophet. He is our greater priest. He is our greater king. And he is our victorious and reigning Messiah. That's what we want to do as we begin to make our way through this season of Advent Just a couple of comments, a couple of more preliminary comments very quickly as you think about these things and as we work through these things together. Let me just recognize that there are different kinds of sermons, okay? There are sermons that engage the will. There are sermons that engage the heart more clearly. There are sermons that engage the mind more more completely, more fully, more specifically, In other words, they're kind of informational things, if you will. And that's what I'm hoping these sermons will be, but I don't want for this to be information that just sticks in your head, you know. We want it to travel the largest distance in the universe. The distance between the head and the heart. 
And I'm hoping as we look at these things, as we think about the various passages we'll be seeing, I'm hoping that more and more our hearts will be enlarged, our hearts will be filled with wonder. As we see the kind of the coherence and the beauty and the internal consistency of the Bible. That's what I'm hoping we'll see and understand more clearly. And then out of that, out of that, my hope and my prayer is that we'll rejoice more fully, more completely, because of a greater understanding of these three themes that you find throughout the Scriptures, those of prophet and priest and king, and and seeing how they serve like so many threads woven into a tapestry to tie this whole story together. It's one story. It's one book. There's one central character. And we're going to look over these next weeks at who that character is. So who is it who is coming? Who is this story about? Well, he is about, or it is about, this prophet, this prophet who is promised, the one who is like Adam in many respects. So let me give us three things to think about as we come to this particular theme, this particular piece of the identity of Jesus, Jesus the greater prophet. First, why do we need the prophet? Why do we need the prophet? And then second, what does the prophet do? What exactly does the prophet do? And then third, who is the greater prophet? I've already answered that question, but I hope we'll see it more clearly before we finish. Why do we need the prophet? Why do we need the prophet? This really certainly anticipates the second point, what the prophet does, but it's something that really should be looked at. Why do we need a prophet? Why do we need a prophet? We need a prophet. We need one who receives the word from God and who speaks the word of God to the people of God. We need the prophet because of some basic, fundamental, foundational questions that we all at some point in our lives ask. We all ask these questions. Who am I? Where have I come from? Where am I going? What do I do in the meantime? Who am I? Where have I come from? Where am I going? And what do I do with this life in the meantime? Those are foundational questions. They're fundamental kinds of questions. Everybody thinks about these things, and everybody is proposing answers about them. The answers, the questions and the answers show up in very interesting places. They show up in in philosophies, to be sure. But they show up in more accessible places as well. They show up in popular music, right? What's it all about, Alfie? This is for the older folks among us. Burt Bacharach, Hal David. What's, What's it all about, Alfie? Is it just for the moment that we live? What's it all about? When you've thought it out, Alfie, are we meant to take more than we give? What's it all about? 
Or maybe a little bit uh, more recently, someone a little bit more current, favorite singer, songwriter of mine, Sarah McLaughlin. Someday I'm going to write a book. I've said this to some folks. I'm going to write a book called The Gospel According to Rock and Roll with the subtitle, Long on Analysis, Short on Solutions. Sarah McLaughlin, spend all your time waiting for that second chance, for a break that will make it okay. There's always some reason to feel not good enough, and it's hard at the end of the day. I need some distraction. Oh, beautiful release. Memory seeps from my veins in the arms of the angel. Who am I? Where have I come from? Where am I going? What's the purpose of this life? There's the classic, classic line from Macbeth when Macbeth learns that the queen has died tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Creep in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable uttered. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. What is it all about? What is life all about? Why am I here? Why do I need the prophet? Here's why I need the prophet. I need the prophet because I need a voice outside my own head to give me answers to these questions. That's why I need the prophet. I need somebody outside my own head who speaks truth, who speaks sensibly. And I need that voice outside my own head for two reasons. And those of you who have been around here for a while, who have been in an inquirer's class, you know why it is that we need a voice outside our own heads for two reasons. I'm finite and I'm flawed. I don't know everything there is to know. And I have to acknowledge, if I'm being honest, I have to acknowledge I've been wrong in the past. And if I've been wrong in the past, there's a pretty good chance that in the present, I'm wrong about something. If I knew what it was, I'd correct it, I'd change it. But I don't know everything that there is to know. And what I do know now, I will guarantee you, I know imperfectly as well as incompletely. I need a voice outside my own head. A voice that will tell me the truth. A a voice that will speak into this world. A voice that will bring answers to these questions so that I will know, so that I can have confidence and assurance that life is more than a tale told by an idiot. Just noise and froth, sound and fury, 
but signifying nothing. There is a worldview. You are surrounded by it. You're engulfed in it. You're overwhelmed by it sometimes. There is a worldview out there, promoted, argued for, that should have Shakespeare as its masthead. Life at the end of the day doesn't have any significance. So why do I need the prophet? I need a prophet outside my own head to tell me what I don't know and to correct me where I'm wrong. I need it. So that leads to the second thing. What the prophet does. What does the prophet do? The prophet does this very simply. The prophet hears and the prophet speaks. The prophet hears and the prophet speaks. The prophet hears a voice outside his own head. And having heard that voice, the prophet speaks what that voice has spoken. The prophet receives the word from God and speaks the word of God to the people of God for the glory of God. That's what the prophet does. The prophet receives the word from God and speaks the word of God to the people of God for the glory of God. That is the role of the prophet. He receives the truth. He speaks the truth. And when the prophet speaks, you can listen with confidence because what he has received, he has received from God who always tells the truth. Now let me walk you through some passages through the Old Testament that make this point, that drive this point home. And I do this, frankly, for the benefit of all of us. Some of us need to be informed about this. Some of us need to be reminded about this. Some of us need to know, we just need to know that there is a voice, an eternal voice. As I say all the time, an infinite personal God really inhabits this universe and he really speaks and when he speaks he speaks the truth and the means by which he conveys his truth to his people for his glory and their good is the prophet Exodus chapter 4 verses 10 through 17 you know this story it's such a great story it's the story of Moses and the burning bush. Uh, Moses is out uh, learning the difference between sheep and goats on the backside of a mountain. This is a guy who grew up in a king's palace, and now he's a goat herder. He's a sheep herder. He's been doing this for quite a long time, about 40 years. And he hears, or he sees, this burning bush. You know the story. It begins in Exodus chapter 3. And to distill the story down, God calls Moses and commissions Moses and empowers Moses and gives Moses a word that he will speak. But Moses is reluctant, remember? I grew up in a king's palace. You know, I know 16 different languages I'm conversant with international politics and diplomacy, but I'm slow of speech. I don't know if he knew 60. I don't know how many he knew, but he knew several. And you pick up reading at verse 10 of chapter 4. Moses said to the Lord, 
O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? I gave you the mouth you have. I know how your mouth works. Hebrews 1, 2 fits nicely into this narrative, into this passage. Hebrews 1, 2 says that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. That's what God is saying to Moses. I made your mouth. I know your mouth. Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Please send someone else. You've heard sermons about this passage. We can only imagine why it is that Moses was so reluctant to go. He was an escaped convict, and he was being sent back to the people from whom he had fled. Yes, it's been a long time. Yes, it's been a long time. But he was terrified at the prospect of having to go back. Verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. And then verse 16, he shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take your staff with which you shall do these powerful signs. What is God doing here? God with Moses and Aaron is giving us a picture of what the relationship is like between God and Moses. Moses will give Aaron the words and Aaron will speak the words just as God will give the words to Moses which Moses will then give to Aaron, which will be spoken to the people. God speaks. God originates. God initiates. God doesn't leave Moses in darkness. He doesn't leave Aaron in darkness. He doesn't leave his people in darkness. He speaks. And it is through the prophet that the word comes to the people of God. And you know the rest of the story, how Moses does exactly what God commissions him to do. He goes back into Egypt. He goes back into a place of oppression. He goes back into a place of imprisonment. He goes back to a people enslaved. And he speaks with power and he acts with power. And because the word of God has power, deliverance comes to the people of God. The word of God, originating with God, is given and entrusted to the prophet. And the prophet speaks it. Look at Jeremiah. You see the same thing. Apparently this disease, this disease that Moses had is catching 
even across the centuries. Jeremiah 1, verse 4, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord, behold, I don't know how to speak. For I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you will go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. See, again, it's the same picture. It originates with God. It is entrusted to Jeremiah. It is given to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is commissioned also with power and authority in this word which God entrusts to him. Look at Ezekiel, chapters 2 and 3. I'll just camp on chapter 3, the first couple of verses. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth. I love this. I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat and I ate it. And it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. As sweet as honey. Remember Psalm 19? Some of you have sung it as a chorus. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the, of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. More to be desired are the commandments of God than gold, even much fine gold, even sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. What did you have for breakfast? Boy, do I need to be reminded of this. That the word of God is not only powerful, but it's sweet. And it originates with God, and God gave it to Moses, and God gave it to Jeremiah, and God gave it to Ezekiel. And you come to the New Testament, and I'll just give you the references. 1 Corinthians 2, where Paul reminds the Corinthians that when he came, he didn't come with lofty words of wisdom. He didn't come with speculations, but he came with what? the gospel of Christ, the cross of Christ. And if you read Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, you will hear Paul saying there that it's not man's gospel that he preached. He was not taught it, he says, but he received it as a revelation from God, from God. Who is the prophet? What does the prophet do? The prophet is one called by God, set apart by God, and given a word from God so that God is, as it were, speaking through this mouthpiece. Moses, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Paul, all of the Old Testament prophets, all of the New Testament apostles, speaking with the authority of the God who has commissioned them. 
shared this story before. It is still, to me, one of the most riveting experiences I've ever had in my life. Barb and I were in the south of Germany. We were in the city of Ulm, and we visited a cathedral. And this is in a Protestant part of that part of Germany. And I walked in the back doors, the nave, this beautiful cathedral, and I looked down the right, and all of the busts of the prophets were lined up along this wall, this nave, in these little alcoves, you know, the, the buttresses, the flying buttresses of these little alcoves, and there were prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Obadiah, lining the wall of the nave. And then I looked to the left, and on the left were the busts of the apostles, Peter and James and John and Paul and Matthew and Mark. And right in the center was an empty, empty little alcove. And fixed to that buttress was the pulpit. And it took my breath away because whoever the architect was who conceived reconfiguring the nave of that church understood that what was central to the people of God in that particular day and that particular time was the preaching of the Word of God. Just as the preaching of the Word of God had been central in the days of Israel and had been central in the days of the apostles. The pulpit standing in the tradition of the prophets and the apostles. I hope you understand, I think you know this, but I hope you understand that at the end of my life, I give an accounting for how I have handled this gospel that has been entrusted to me. People ask me, how can I pray for you? Here's the application for the sermon, okay? People say, how can I pray for you? Pray for that. Pray for that. Don't pray for my health. So, I mean, yes, pray for my health so that I can get up here and do this. But before that, pray for faithfulness to this gospel that has been entrusted to me. Now, here's what's interesting. I find this absolutely fascinating. Everything that we've said, we've said thus far, post-fall, Everything that we've referred to has been after the fall. But what is true after the fall is true before the fall as well. Think about it. That's why I suggested to you last week that the first prophet is in fact Adam. And in that sense, Adam, as Paul says, is a type of the one who is to come. Think about it. Here is Adam, planted in this garden, surrounded by this abundance, pulsating with life, with the blessing of God upon everything. But for Adam to know who he is, where he came from, where he's going, and what it is that he is to do, God must speak. God must speak. On both sides of the fall, the necessity exists for the infinite personal God to communicate with his creature. 
And so God communicates with Adam. He does it in Genesis 1. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. He commissions the man and the woman together to act in his place as vice regents over the whole of the creation, multiplying image bearers so that the whole of the creation is filled with image bearers, men and women and little children, populating the earth, subduing the earth, cultivating the earth, nurturing the earth, bringing glory to God across the totality of human existence for the glory of God. He speaks tells them who they are, tells them what they're made for, tells them where they're going, tells them what they're supposed to do. See, there is so much that is surprising to us about God when we get so familiar with these things, we, fam- we forget, we forget how gracious and good and kind God is that he doesn't leave us in darkness. He didn't leave Adam in darkness. And even after Adam's horrible, horrible rebellion. By the way, you know the basic architecture of the scriptures? Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. I've got a new word for fall. I got it from somebody. I think it was at a conference where I was a couple of weeks ago. Creation, rebellion. Creation, rebellion, redemption, and consummation. After Adam commits his great, great act of rebellion, God continues to speak and makes promises upon promise, upon promise, upon promise. My point here is that on both sides of the fall, God is pleased to speak. And Adam not only accepted and received that word, he did what prophets do with that word. He spoke the word that he received. How do we know that? We know that because when the tempter came, Eve quoted what had been revealed to Adam before she was created. See, he's the first prophet. He receives the word of God and he speaks the word of God to the people of God for their good and for his own glory. That is God's glory. So the prophet did his work. Adam did his work. And then he failed. And having failed now, there is the need for a second Adam. There is a need for a greater prophet. And that is what Deuteronomy 18, 15 promises. The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And across all of the rest of the Old Testament, in every generation, there was a prophet who was raised up. But again, if you look at Acts chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, And then you look again at Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 7. In both of those passages, you will see the New Testament understanding that all of those prophets who had preceded Jesus simply pointed ahead to this greater prophet who is to come. All of the prophets pointed ahead to Jesus. 
from Samuel to Jeremiah to Ezekiel to Amos to Obadiah and all the way down to Malachi, the last of the speaking prophets. And then after 400 years of silence, there is another prophet, John, who comes. But even John himself points not to himself, but points to the greater prophet, points to Jesus as the fulfillment of what had been promised in Deuteronomy 15. So how is Jesus the greater prophet? How is Jesus the greater Adam? Well, unlike Adam, he never rejected the word of God. Unlike Adam, he never succumbed to the devious twistings employed by the tempter. It's really interesting. You contrast the first Adam with the second Adam. The first Adam is in a garden, a garden filled with beauty and with food, and with every evidence of God's goodness and faithfulness. The first Adam receives the word from God. But the first Adam, failing in the midst of all of that beauty, rejects the word that God has given him. The second Adam, you don't find him in a garden you find him in a wilderness waste. You don't find him surrounded by abundance. You find him going without for 40 days and for 40 nights. You don't find him in a place pulsating with life. You find him in a place that is typically seen in the Old Testament as a place of death. And in a place of death where there is no food and there is no water, Jesus, the greater Adam, receives the word of God and speaks the word of God, rejecting the temptations of the tempter. And so he succeeds where the first Adam has failed. How is he the greater prophet? He possesses the word of God. Read John 5, 19 and John 8, 26. Look at those passages. Jesus says to his audience, I only speak what I have heard from my Father. I only do what I see my Father doing. I joked at the refuge when I teach there on Friday mornings that Jesus is the most dysfunctional 30-year-old you've ever met in your life. Any 30-year-old who says, I only do what my father does, I only say what my father does, you think of as codependent and dysfunctional. But in this case, there's no dysfunction. There is Jesus fulfilling where Adam failed fulfilling the role of prophet, receiving every word from the Father, saying in John 15, 15 to his disciples, I call you friends. How do you know that I'm your friend? I've only told you what my Father 
what my father has first told me. How is Jesus the greater Adam? He receives the word of God and speaks the word of God against the enemies of God. He only speaks what he hears from his father. And beyond that, he is the greater prophet. Not only does he possess the word, but he is, in fact, the word of God. He is the word of God. John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Folks, this is a world in which there are so many voices fighting for your attention, seeking to command your attention. A cacophony of sound out there. There's one voice in the midst of all of those voices that can be trusted. It is the voice of the greater prophet, Jesus, who is given by a gracious God to you so that you might know who you are, know what you're made for, know where you are headed, know what you are to do in the interim. Years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote this wonderful book. The title is still so critically important. He is there and he is not silent. He has spoken. And in his good providence, he has preserved his speech, what he has given to his prophets for the good of his people and for his own glory. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you are this greater prophet. We give you thanks that you have come not only to speak this word, but you have come as this word. And we praise and thank you that we may look to you, to this word, with absolute confidence, because you always speak the truth. We praise and thank you in your name. Amen.